Sunday, and welcome to October. You're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, your Sunday afternoon news hour. Um, today, when we're recording this, is Thursday, September 30th, but this episode will be airing on Sunday, October 3rd. Um, my name is Jasmine. My co-host, Reese, will be joining us later on in the hour. Emily is away this week, but here in spirit. And on this week's show, we'll be discussing gun violence with Dr. Maurizio Porfiri, the U.S. debt ceiling crisis, World Health Organization's employees accused of sex abuse in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and a legal victory for NYC delivery workers. So first up, as part of our partnership with NYU's Center for the Investigation of Environmental Hazards, Community Engagement Corps, we have a special guest on with us today. Our guest is Institute Professor at NYU Tandon School of Engineering with appointments in the Center for Urban Science and Progress, the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, and the Department of Biomedical Engineering, Dr. Maurizio Porfiri. Dr. Porfiri, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for uh, having me. And, uh, 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 it's nice. It's uh, it's very nice to have the opportunity to share uh, my work with you. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to have you on. To get started, what is your academic background, and how did you come to study gun violence? So my academic background is uh, miles away from uh, gun violence. Uh, my training is in engineering and applied mathematics. I started. Uh, being interested in the topic due to unfortunate uh, circumstances, whereby most of my training was um, at Virginia Tech, in the very same department that uh, has been uh, on the news for the massacre in 2007. And indeed, I have seen uh, members of my committee uh, suffering. One of them uh, has lost his life, Professor Librescu, and uh, many of my friends went to profound distress. So I, I had just left. It was in 2007 and I left school in 2006. So since then, uh, I promised to myself uh, to try to find ways to contribute uh, to a better understanding of guns in the country. And after 10 years or so, I matured a set of technical tools that I had developed for very different problems that I felt could be important to shed light on gun violence in the US in somehow an objective manner that can help us understand why we have so many guns and what are the implications of the guns. First of all, I want to say like my condolences for your loss. I know, you know, even if you weren't there, it's still traumatic to have something like that hit so close to home. Yeah, it has been, uh, it was really rough. And every time I go, I, I go back often, we have a lot of friends. I am my former PhD advisor. So we, we go, all go often, maybe once every couple of years. And every time it's kind of a shock. You see the place where you studied, that now is completely changed. They have to change the architecture. They reorganized it. This year I was uh, uh, given the honor to speak uh, at, uh, uh, in honor of Professor Librescu. So every time it's um, a big, uh, uh, yes, it's a big shock every time. It's not going to go away soon. 
Okay, so thank you for sharing with us um, your academic background and how you came to do this work. And um, what parts of the world does your work focus on? I know you're originally from Italy. Yes, I am originally Italian, but uh, this particular work uh, focuses uh, on the U.S. So we have been uh, uh, collecting uh, a lot of data over the years uh, on uh, gun prevalence and uh, gun-related violence, everything in the U.S. We have data at the national level, we collected data at the state level, and... Uh, when possible, we went a little bit more granular, uh, looking uh, at uh, county level data in case of uh, uh, mass shootings or uh, similar events. Okay, and using that data, what have you learned are the main drivers of gun violence? So, uh, what, uh, uh, so the work that so far uh, we have completed uh, and we are very comfortable in sharing deals uh, a lot uh, with uh, gun prevalence more than violence in the sense uh, that the questions we thought to address uh, entail uh, the reason why people buy guns and uh, the very problem that we have looked at uh, is uh, at the interaction between uh, mass shootings and firearm acquisition. So there has been a lot of uh, uh, coverage in the press regarding uh, the possibility that people buy gun, guns at, right after a mass shooting because they do fear for themselves. So uh, some sort of self-protection. So this one is a theory that has been proposed in many, many studies for many, many years. What we try to do is understand if this interaction was indeed mediated by some other variable, and if that variable could tell a different story. So in particular, uh, not being American, uh, I mean, now I am a citizen, but not coming from, uh, not being educated in this country, I was always very surprised of the political debate that would follow a mass shooting, where uh, across the aisle, people would advocate for the need of more guns versus the need of regulate more so that they would reduce the number of guns. And those are very, very divisive discussions that don't have much of, much of a middle ground. And they happen quite uh, a lot, and uh, they happen for a, quite a long time. So what I thought uh, is uh, that perhaps uh, this very discussion are fueling the desire to buy guns. So perhaps people don't buy guns because they fear for themselves, but because they see on the news that there is this ongoing discussion, and maybe that new regulation can come up and curtail their access to guns. Right. So the problem is not that you don't, uh, that, that you buy a gun for self-protection, but you buy a gun because you can fear that you'll not be able to buy a gun in the coming future. So I based see. on this premise, yeah. So that was uh, one of the theory that we had in mind. And we looked at... Uh, a causal analysis to understand if this was a possible explanation. 
And we did find this. I mean, we did find data that confirmed the explanation. So what we find is that mass shootings are triggering sales through a third variable, which is coverage of mass shootings in terms of upcoming regulation. So it's a more complicated triangle. It tells us that uh, more than the self-protection or together with the self-protection, there is a fear of not being able to buy guns. Because, I mean, if you if you look at the news, uh, uh, when uh, um, so a mass shooting, uh, it's somehow of a, it's a catalyzer to some extent for a, a broader discussion. So in the country, we don't talk as much about guns. The moment you talk about, about guns uh, is uh, when a mass shooting happens. Mm-hmm. So at the point, uh, you talk about regulating them potentially. So in reality, the mass shooting triggers the discussion, and that discussion of potential regulation drives the appetite for guns to some extent. That At least uh, this is what we discovered from our uh, analysis, which uh, did not have uh, a preset agenda. We looked at the time series of collected data and then see if there was a, a causal link between the variables. When I speak of causal link, I think it's quite important to stress it. I am not looking at a correlation meaning I'm not looking at two variables that are growing together. I am trying to understand if one variable helps us predict the future of the other variable, meaning if I have an uptick in media coverage regarding regulation, can I predict that in the coming month or the coming two months or three months, there is an increase in sales of guns? So it's different than uh, putting the two variables together on uh, an XY plot. It's more than that. It's telling us that one variable contains information valuable to predict the future of the other, which is in some sense what we call causality. Right. Okay, that's that's good to know. Because like as you know, people say it all the time, like a correlation doesn't necessarily mean something is the cause of something mm-hmm. else, but that's often... Um, what people automatically jump to. Exactly. So, in fact, uh, on this case, uh, we have that uh, between mass shootings and gun sales, there is a correlation, but we didn't find a causal link. Instead, when we include the third variable, which is media coverage of regulations, we find a causal link. Okay, between another, the next yes. event of gun violence. Yes, and the the coverage. How many people would have to have been killed for it to qualify as a mass shooting? Yes, so that's, uh, uh, believe it or not, uh, is not a universal definition. It's still quite a debated topic. Some people would argue that there are four um, victims. Some people would argue five. Some people would argue that the mass shooting has to be defined to happen in a public space. Mm-hmm. Some others would consider that not a public space is still okay. In some instances, you don't want to have an underlying uh, criminal motive you, mm-hmm. so that you can exclude gangs. Some other definitions would also be more inclusive 
and account for gang-related activity. So there is not really a universal definition. Uh, if we narrow it down to public, public mass shooting with more than four victims, excluding crimes, we are uh, dealing uh, with uh, uh, not many events. But at right. the end, these are the events that uh, oftentimes make the news and trigger the discussion. Okay, yeah, that's very, I'm glad that we um, talked about that, because that is a big distinction, because I know myself personally, like someone who say like a family annihilator that, you know, kills everyone in their home, I would still think of that in my mind as a type of mass shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, everyone else doesn't necessarily agree with that, or like places where gun violence that's interpersonal is very prevalent, I would think that still is you know, a type of gun violence that has a similar impact on the community as a mass shooting where it makes you afraid to go outside or you feel like you might need a gun to protect yourself. Yes, ex- exactly. Yes. So, uh, the, so, the, the, so it depends on the source that you look at. We have looked at sources like the Washington Post and Mother Jones, and they are pretty consistent in these definitions that exclude uh uh, this kind of relationship. And at the end, uh, they, there are not many events. I mean, you are looking at uh, something on the order of 100 over uh, the last 20 years or so. But these events uh, are, ex- so the number of casualties is uh, very small compared to the total of losses that every year we register due to gun violence. So we are looking at a, at, uh, a fraction of a percent. But uh, this is when we talk about gun violence, I believe. People can't name the last person that was killed in their neighborhood, but they know about Virginia Tech, they know about yes. Kroger and things like this. Um, so to be clear, your research mostly focuses on those exceptional cases. So, so far we focused on the exceptional cases because we wanted to look at the uh, sales, trying to understand right. what drives the sales. Now, right. instead that we are switching more towards the outcome, then we need to look at everything. And uh, uh, surprisingly, to some extent, a key variable is uh, are suicides. So suicides, mm. it's, uh, it accounts for a half or so of casualties every year related to guns for example. Mm. So this is something that we are uh, actively looking at, and especially as a predictor of uh, gun sales again. So to to be able to relate the prevalence of guns with some uh, uh, variables that have been measured, which are the suicides with guns, which are very, very prevalent. Right, I see. And uh, this is something that we spoke about briefly when we chatted yesterday before this interview. Um, we talked about how this issue is very politicized and people have a lot of strong feelings about guns. So given that context, why is objectivity important to you in your work? Yes, I think this is extremely important. Um, yes, so I'm very passionate about bringing methods which are objective, borrowed from statistics, engineering, applied mathematics to help understand what are the consequences of gun ownership, what are uh, outcomes 
violence-related outcomes and bring forward methodologies to identifying effective policymaking, which is based, grounded in data, without a political agenda. So we want to look at raw data, apply our mathematical techniques, and then help pinpoint what are practices that are conducive to prosperity, health, and well-being of the population. Whether right. they would lean toward uh, uh, one uh, political uh, uh, view or the other political view. We are completely open and try to embrace the problem objectively with uh, engineering and mathematics as the drivers. So you don't want to, in other words, start out with the with a certain goal in mind or like a certain um, conclusion in mind already, and then and end up finding data that fits that you want to go where the data leads you. Yeah, exactly. I think this is very very important. This is such a, a such an important problem, a public health concern, controversial topic that it deserves our most. Uh, unbiased and uh, honest objective look and uh, yes so i'm really really proud and happy that we have had the support of the national science foundation from the engineering program to help us lay the foundation for this scientific understanding that can help scientific literacy on the topic and increase awareness because now, at the end, uh, what we know largely relies on these correlational studies, anecdotal evidence, so it's very difficult to draw general conclusion. We are trying to build the data set and the mathematical tools to support conclusions which are grounded in science. And I think that will be important for people to, to appreciate the problem and uh, uh, come on board with effective solutions. And so, Dr. Porfiri, where can our listeners find your work? So, uh, we have a couple of papers, journal papers, which uh, I believe uh, help clarify the uh, relationship between mass shootings, media coverage, and gun ownership at the national level and at the state level. And uh, I'll be happy to send you the links. These papers have been published in Nature Human Behavior and in uh, Patterns by Cell Press. Okay, so excellent. So just uh, to all of you listening, if you would like to read more of Dr. Porfiri's work, we will post those links on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. Um, so thank you very much, Dr. Porfirio, for taking the time to speak with us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. I hope uh, that the accent was bearable and uh, the message came through. Yeah, it was It was, um, It was. was great. It was very clear. I learned a lot, and I'm, I'm sure that our listeners did as well. Very good. Very good. So they got uh, exposure to this uh, authentic uh, Italian accent. Very good. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, the real deal, the real yeah. McCoy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It has been a, a true pleasure. It was a pleasure speaking with you as well. So listeners, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back after this first musical break. This is a song by the Wu-Tang Clan called Tears. After, 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 after,
Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. So welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. So Jasmine, tell me a little bit about your week. How's everything been going? Um, I can't complain. It's been all right. Um, Work has been kind of busy for me, but I'm grateful in these times to have a job and something I can do from home for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I feel you, girl. Work has been overwhelming for me. As you know, I work in higher ed and it's still fall. So we have people coming, going, graduating, confused and everything in between. So I'm just like been on for the past month, for the past 30 days. Yeah. And I, I probably have another 30 days to go before things calm down. All right, so we'll go ahead and hop into our national news story for the week. So I know if you've been following the news at all, uh, conversations this week about this whole government shutdown is really confusing. So um, we're going to dive into what this means and try to break it down to some practical terms so you can understand what this um, entire thing is with the debt ceiling. So I have two articles here. One of them is from the New York Times. The author is Alan Rappaport. And the title of that author is Explaining the U.S. Debt Limit and Why It Became a Bargaining Tool, Political Polarization, turned a tool for fiscal responsibility into a recipe for economic calamity. What a title, right? And the second one um, is from fortune.com. Just really helps to kind of break down some of the language. The author is Chris Morris. And the title of that article is if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, what does that mean for you? As Congress continues to flirt with the idea of not raising or suspending the nation's debt limit, Economists and scholars are once again considering whether creative escape hatches like a trillion dollar coin or the invocation of the 14th Amendment might help the United States avoid a self-inflicted economic calamity. 
Republicans and Democrats are at odds over whose responsibility it is to raise the country's borrowing cap. Democrats insist that it be done on a bipartisan basis, reflecting the fact that both parties have incurred big debts over the last several years. Republicans, who voted for debt limit suspensions under President Donald Trump when he was in office, now say that there's no need for them to help because Democrats control all the levels of power in Washington and they are preparing to push through trillions of dollars in the new spending on their own. All of this drama raises the question of what the debt limit really is and how it got here, how we got here, and why the United States does not do away with the debt limit entirely and spare the nation from its periodic face-off with an economic time bomb. While the debt ceiling debate often elicits calls to lawmakers to cut back on government spending, lifting the debt limit does not authorize any new spending and, in fact, simply allows the U.S. to finance existing obligations. So I'm going to hop into a little bit of the other article. Uh, what kind of effect would the debt ceiling default have on the average person? Well, a pretty major one um, if you rely on government for regular checks. So the first question is, will I still get my Social Security check if the debt ceiling isn't raised or suspended? The answer is you might not. By defaulting on the debt ceiling, the government will not be able to borrow or pay for operations, which could result in a delay in Social Security checks. And the National Committee, the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare recently warranted benefit checks could be delayed for weeks and possibly longer if Congress doesn't act on the debt limit. The money will still be there, so Social Security funds are separate from the government's operating fund, but dispersing them could run into delays. It is worth noting that the Social Security Administration has never missed a payment since its foundation in 1935. So that's, you know, I don't know if that's comforting or not, but I know a lot of our parents and grandparents depend on that. Yeah. Um, so we definitely would not want a disruption. Um <laughs> In those yeah. funds, people you know, that are getting it, and also knowing that if you if you're a working person, that's coming out of your check every week or every two weeks. Like it better be there. Exactly. You know, I didn't know that. You know, I had an idea that they operated separately, just because the way that it's um it's noted on your check and on your statements and on your taxes. Uh, but and it's nice to know that they never miss the payment. But it's also very scary to think that our you know our elderly population may be at jeopardy of that you know it, it, it's just really sad because for so sure many people depend on that money exactly okay? yeah and it's already not that much exactly so delaying it can only cause disruption in all of our lives because then we have to now have supplemental income from our parents for our parents grandparents or anyone else because there are some children as well that you know receive social security so right like ssi and disability payments and exactly. so on so that's something to, you know, pay attention to. Okay. So the next question, will government employees receive paychecks if the debt ceiling isn't raised or suspended? Federal employees, including the military, are paid naturally by the government. Failing to raise or suspend the debt ceiling effectively means the government can't pay its bills. Many paychecks possibly will be suspended until, situations, until the situation is resolved. So that's kind of big, okay? If you work for the government, whether it's a government agency, if you are a military officer, and I, you know, I didn't do the uh, due diligence to find out if this affects education as well, because if you work at a state-sponsored school, that's also a government organization. So, you know, th that funding, um, I'm sure it's also tied up in the actual funding for the school that's given by donors and alumni and stuff like that. But I'm sure it has something to do with that. 
Okay. The next question, would failing to raise or suspend the debt ceiling affect my veteran benefits? Veterans will be affected by the debt crisis as well. Millions rely on pension payments to supplement their income or as their sole source of income. Those payments would likely lapse if the situation is not resolved by October 18th. So that's huge. Okay, there's a lot of veterans here, young and old, um, who are relying on that and a lot of veterans who uh, use those benefits for education as well. So that could have a trickle down effect for that. How would a debt ceiling crisis impact Medicare? Much like Social Security, it's possible. The federal debt includes Medicare payments and the debt limit allows this program to be financed. Should the limit not be raised or suspended, it could cause delays in Medicare payments, which right now during a global pandemic, this is not what we need. Okay, Um, I am I'm very curious personally about how um, all of the how the COVID testing and the COVID vaccination supply is being funded right now because it's, you know, it's free to do all these things. And I feel like that's something that's not being really spoken about. Um, but I feel like that's something that would stop or be halted. Or, you know, if you've tried to get a COVID test, that's not free. I don't know if anybody's done that, but that joined us like $300. It's very, I was shocked because I saw on Twitter, it was people talking about people in New York city talking about, they were paying like $200 plus for a COVID test. And I was trying to as much as possible, put links out like you can. There's so many walk in places that are free. Do yeah. not pay this money. Like, even if it's paying $10 at the city MD, you do not have to go. Like, there's other places you can go and not pay anything. But yeah. I did see something in the news that says something about like there was going to, like, there was going to be some kind of restriction on free COVID testing or like they're trying to scale back on it. So I don't know, like, that is a good question. Like, what's, where's you know, that, how, coming from, where's right? that money coming from? Because you have to pay people to administer the test. You got to pay for them to be processed and all of that. Yeah. And so, you know, that that's a big thing. I think it was a couple of weeks ago. I went to go get a test, um, you know, to sing in church. We do tests frequently uh, just to make sure that we're safe. And um, I think it was like a day where the city MD had, staff appreciation. So all city MDs across the city were closed. It was a Saturday. And so I was just like, wow, I kept going from city MD to city MD and and then I realized what was happening. So when I started looking up other places, I tried to call some clinics and different places from the free numbers. And there was a charge of like 250 to $300. Well, just, you know, for our listeners, just so you're aware, if you live in New York city or you're able to come, New York City Health and Hospitals does free COVID testing at pretty much all of their sites. They also have mobile vans. So I'm going to pull up and tell you what the link is, just because I want for people to know about this. Because please don't, like, please do not pay. You do not need to pay. Um, Yeah. Yeah, definitely good information to have. Yeah, it's NYC Health and Hospitals one word dot org forward slash COVID hyphen one nine hyphen testing hyphen S I T E S. That's the website, and it will list in all the different boroughs where you can go. You don't need insurance. They might ask you for it. If you don't have it, that's fine. But do not pay these exorbitant prices for testing. Like the city does offer it for free. 
And that's not the case for all cities in the United States. So nope. You know, these are just some thoughts that came, you know, to my head while I was looking this up. Because when you really think about all of the things that the government funds in this country, some of it, we, you know, we don't pay attention to it. And I know people that actually really depend on the system. It's a different situation. But when you're in a situation where you have to, that's different. Um, so, yeah. Okay, back to the article. Um, what are the odds of the debt ceiling default really happening? House Democrats have passed a stopgap spending bill that would keep the government running through December, which includes suspending the debt limit through December 2022. Senate Republicans, though, are strongly opposing the plan. Mitch McConnell has said that the GOP will not support raising the debt limit. How much debt does the United States currently have? The national debt now stands at $28.43 trillion, according to the Peter G. Peterson Foundation's live tracker. Currently, the borrowing cap is set at $28.4 trillion, leaving the federal government with negligible wiggle room. To offer some perspective on the scale of such a shortfall, the U.S. entire gross domestic product was $20.93 trillion last year. So you guys kind of see how those numbers were about uh, eight point something trillion short um, from the GDP. And I'm sure those numbers could, you know, may have been skewed or, you know, may not be um, exact. But that kind of gives you an idea. We're obviously facing some major crisis here. If the debt ceiling, if the debt ceiling disappear, what would replace it? The lack of a replacement is one of the main reasons the debt ceiling has persisted. The United States could follow the Denmark model and raise the debt limit stratospherically high. Some also have suggested that it could also force the limit to increase in lockstep with new funding. Would it be a good idea to do away with the debt limit? Few lawmakers from either party enjoy a vote on the debt ceiling. And the default that would be caused by a failure to raise it would lead to an economic catastrophe. With political polarization in the United States showing no signs of abating, it often seems that the risk of an accidental default outweighs any fiscal responsibility that the debt limit encourages. However, it would take an act from Congress to do away with the debt limit and find an agreement there is never easy. So that's pretty much my recap. Um, I hope that broke it down just a little bit so that you can understand why this is such an important time in our history where we need to have some understanding. Uh, that doesn't even have, you know, that's just the, the setup. The infrastructure bill that Biden is trying to pass is another thing that's kind of running a second to this. So one doesn't depend on the other, but it doesn't look like obviously they're going to sign for the infrastructure bill if the debt limit is not increased because those two things obviously work hand in hand. If we don't have the money to do the infrastructure because we're in so much debt, that'll never happen. And that uh, apparently, or according to some sources, that specific bill is supposed to not only have more security for infrastructure, it also has a big, it will have a big impact on climate change and some of these social safety uh, programs that I spoke about in this article. So as we move along, you know, I'll try to recap that in a future episode about how that infrastructure bill could impact us directly in our country. But I just thought it'd be a good idea for us to have a little background on this story. Yeah, for sure. Like it's definitely something that I'm guilty of not fully understanding. Like I did take economics classes when I was in, in high school, 
Um, but that was a long time ago at this point, and it's never been like my strong suit. But I just I find a lot of these things to be very confusing and deep in the weeds. Um, so I hope this isn't a silly question, but who is the debt to? Like we're in debt to whom? That is a very good question. It is it's confusing to me because it seems like in debt to ourselves, uh, which is why I didn't go into so much of that because it's still a lot of red tape. Uh, it doesn't say that we particularly owe one country anything, but I'm I'm guarantee you that some of this is not, you know, there's many types of currency and that's mm-hmm. something for us to consider. You know, it could be something as, as it could be obviously through military, you know, that's where we do a lot of our spending. Um, it could also be a lot through um, science and medicine where we get, you know, medications and patents and things like that from other countries. So I will look into that to find out. Um, but it's a lot of like Robin Peter to pay Paul type of shit, you know, and debt managing debt. That's what it sounds like. We're going to get more debt so we can manage the debt we have so we can continue our country, which is the American way, right? Yeah, a bunch of broke boys and girls running around, running things into the ground. Right. You know, everybody's on a hamster. Everybody's on like a hamster wheel from, you know, the least of us to, I guess, the people in charge don't know how to figure this out either. So, yeah, it's definitely worth um, educating oneself about if you're like me and you don't fully grasp it. Um, so yeah, like you'll, we'll continue to talk about it on the show and like right. while we're learning about it, like we'll put links up on our social media, like a beginner's guide or something to understanding how national debt even functions. Yeah. I just think it's important for us to pay attention to this because we see a lot of other economies across the world crashing, you know, for all type of problems. Sometimes it's just, you know, straight up governments, just you know, corruption. Sometimes it's, you know, famine and natural disasters. Sometimes it's just people taking stuff. So it's just kind of a lot. I think it's more, um, this type of conversation is more privy to people outside of the U.S., but obviously smaller nations that have debt to other countries because of all type of, you know, wrong reasons. But in the same context, like, just be more frugal people in general. We all are way more blessed than um we can ever imagine and it's just time for us to just be more mindful about how we use our resources because what if they're not available to us anymore so we have to just be more mindful of that so i don't want to scare you guys but keep your eyes open all right we're gonna go ahead and hop into our second music break for today and this is a great throwback joint to accompany the story this is for the love of money by the ojs we'll be right back
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now Jasmine is up with our world news story. This is a pretty sad um, breaking story. It's about the World Health Organization. Uh, this in, this um, article was published on Reuters. Uh, the authors are Emma Farge and Hera Ward Holland. The title is Who Employees Took Part in Congo Sex Abuse During Ebola Crisis, Report Says. Um, and this was written on uh, September the 28th. More than 80 aid workers, including some employed by the World Health Organization, were involved in sexual abuse and exploitation during an Ebola crisis in the Democratic Republic of Congo an independent commission said on Tuesday. The probe was prompted by an investigation last year by the Thomson Reuters Foundation and the New Humanitarian, in which more than 50 women accused aid workers from the WHO and other charities of demanding sex in exchange for jobs between 2018 and 2020. In its long-awaited report, the commission found that at least 21 of 83 suspected perpetrators were employed by the World Health Organization, and that the abuses, which include nine allegations of rape, were committed by both national and international staff. The review team has established that the presumed victims were promised jobs in exchange for sexual relations or in order to keep their jobs, Commission member Malik Koulibaly told a press briefing. Many of the male perpetrators refused to use a condom and 29 of the women became pregnant and some were forced to later abort by their abusers, he added. WHO Director General Tedros Adhanam Jesus, who has pledged zero tolerance on sexual abuse and is said to be seeking a second term at the United Nations Health Body, said the report made harrowing reading and apologized to the victims. What happened to you should never happen to anyone. It is inexcusable. It is my top priority to ensure that the perpetrators who are, are not excused but are held to account, he said, promising further steps including wholesale reform of our structures and culture. 
Regional Director Matshidisu Moeti said the health body was humbled, horrified, and heartbroken by the findings. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spokesperson also apologized and thanked victims for their courage in testifying. The known perpetrators have been banned from future WHO employment, while the contracts of four people employed by the body have been terminated, officials said. It is not clear if the perpetrators will face prosecution. Tedros said he planned to refer the rape allegations to Congo and to the countries of the suspected perpetrators. Some of them have yet to be identified. Victims, representatives in the one-time Ebola hotspot of Benin and eastern Congo welcomed the WHO's response, but urged it to do more. We encourage the WHO to continue and show the community that its personnel who abuse women and their daughters in our community have been genuinely severely punished, said Esperance Kazi, coordinator of women's rights group One Girl, One Leader in Benin. One girl, a 14-year-old named as Jolianne in the report, told the commission she was selling phone recharge cards on the side of the road in April 2019 in Mangina when a WHO driver offered her, to bo- offered her a ride home. Instead, he took her to a hotel where she says he raped her and she later gave birth to his child. Some women who were already employed told the review team that they continued to be sexually harassed by men in supervisory positions who forced them to have sex to keep their jobs, get paid, or get a better paid position. Some said they had been dismissed for refusing sex while others did not get the jobs they wanted even after consenting. Alleged victims were not provided with the necessary support and assistance required for such degrading experiences, the report said. Co-chair of the investigation, Aisha Tu Mindaudu, said that there was no overlap between the victims who testified in last year's media reports and those it interviewed, acknowledging that this could point to a larger problem. Some people at higher levels of the WHO were aware of what was going on and did not act, she added. In June last year, Congo's government announced the end of the two-year outbreak of Ebola that killed more than 2,200 people, the second largest outbreak since the virus was identified in 1976. Congo and other aid agencies have also pledged investigations into the sex abuse. Congo's Minister of Human Rights was not immediately available for comment. Um, so yeah, it was a bit a bit lengthy, but um, it seems like it's a recent um, a story that broke recently, and there's a lot of different places reporting on it right now. This is so unfortunate. I fucking hate to hear stories like this about when people are in need and the people who are there to help right. them are not out for their best interest. Oh, I mean, I know evil persists all over the world and things of that nature, but when, you know, it's exponential when it's situations like this where, you know, there is no global government, there is no, you know, global health fund for people who go through disaster. We all have to uh, create organizations to reach out to people who need it. But when you're vulnerable, and you have no other choices to know that you'll be a victim again, you know, on top of it. It's like, which organ, how can you, who do you trust? 
you know, what organizations can we say we can go to and depend on in situations like this? Yeah, this is, that's a good point. And what reading this made me think about how if someone is predatory, they use that term predatory for a reason. Like they know how to go into certain spaces and take advantage of specific situations or specific positions. So like, unfortunately, you know, we've talked about it on the show before. Um, Sexual violence is something that is widespread. It's pervasive. But in a situation like this, you can see how, you know, the World Health Organization is an arm of the United Nations. It had, you know, a lot of people would just assume that if you're connected with the World Health Organization and there were other charities involved, they just assume that someone like that is on the up and up. And it's not necessarily the case, you know, and they also will take, there are people who will take advantage of that. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's a job, you know, it's a job like any other job, unfortunately, and human beings are so flawed. Um, Even if you have, you know, the intentions to be helpful, you can still be haunted by demons or just make bad choices. Um, You made a good point that people who are in the position to help those understand the vulnerabilities on a different level. And that, you know, unfortunately, there's no real way, systemic way or even, you know, psychological way to determine who is going to do their job and uphold this um, position that they hold with dignity and respect. You know, how do we even measure that? Um, If there was a way to measure it, it would probably lead to prejudice or something because, you know, that's talking about people's character. And you you're right. You would assume that someone who's deciding to do this kind of work has a different type of character because it's not easy, but that's not always true. You know, I know it's hard, but like I applaud the victims for coming forward, you know, like 100%, you know, these are women and also children that were victims of this, you know, and unfortunately it seems like it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Historically, the DRC has had um, issues with sexual abuse and sexual violence, Uh, for young people and women for a long time. I actually did a project on that when I was in grad school, uh, just kind of tracing some of the systemic problems that lead to this being such a a pervasive problem in that country, along with all of the other issues of poverty and just the separation of resources and the denial of resources for people who really need them. So it puts people in desperate situations. Um, But it's important to note that, you know, no matter who these perpetrators are, these victims are standing up for themselves. We've seen a lot of this happen as of late with a lot of the stories that we've talked about. And it's such a hard thing to do, um, especially when you feel like your voice doesn't matter or you're just, you know, one speck on the right. global scheme of things like, you know, that's really, really tough. So um, definitely shouts out to them for having courage and, and not allowing this to be the story or trying to prevent this from being the story for other people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I know you mentioned earlier that we can't tell the future of what a person might or might not do. But one thing that is important to note is, you know, in the article, they mentioned there were people in positions of authority who were aware and they chose not to do anything. And that's something that we absolutely can have more control over, you know, like just like when we talked about the Larry Nassar thing, Where there's people that know something is wrong and they are in a position to stop it and they make an active decision not to. Like, that's the first step. 
Yeah. Enablers are just as responsible. Right. Um, yeah. We've heard Absolutely. A lot of people, yeah. We've heard a lot of people talking about that also with the, you know, recent conviction of R. Kelly. Thank right. Goodness, this finally fucking happened. Um, and I, I read something today that said, you know, does the, the way that this case was handled and many others like it shows that America does not truly care about the safety of black and brown young women because this man was doing this shit for so long. <laughs> now now it's coming to now it's like okay we should do something about it you know um it's really really difficult for all the people who are victims of sexual assault or violence to even live beyond the trauma that has happened to them you yeah know? so and and not just live but live with integrity and still have some um vigor for life and belief in in yourself and, and you know that you can move on from this so you know don't be an enabler you know, you're just as, you know, you're just as guilty, but the reality is like, it takes a village, you know what I'm saying? So just like it takes one to to raise one to take one to save one for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention also, it's uh, not the same, but there was a reveal episode, the podcast reveal, they do investigative journalism and they had an episode about racism within Doctors Without Borders. And it was very interesting. It was very sad, but it was interesting. And they did a good breakdown about how a lot of these um, international organizations that will send people into a country that is not their own country, like there's still a lot of embedded um, like misogyny, racism and things like that with the way the the expats are treated compared to people that are like local people who are dealing with the crisis. Yeah. So it's it's a bit of an aside because it wasn't specifically about sexual abuse, but um, just in the same vein of, you know, you can't just because an organization is has um, ostensibly a mission to help people, that does not mean you can shut your brain off and not pay attention to the things that they perpetuate that are harmful. It's still, you know, an organization with a hierarchy, with flawed human beings who are a part of it. You still have to pay attention and not just take for granted that, you know, they have everyone, you know, in the local countries, like best interests at heart, because that's clearly not the case. Thank you so much for that story. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and pull us into the good news this week. Um, This story is from TheGuardian.com. And it is the author is Carrie Paul. The title of the article is New York City Delivery Workers Win Rights to Better Tips, Bathrooms and More. New York City lawmakers have passed a historical package of bills to improve labor conditions for gig economy and food delivery workers. The first of its kind legislation, which targets app based delivery companies such as Grubhub, Uber Eats and DoorDash, will have a minimal pay allow workers to keep more of their tips, and limit how far workers can be asked to travel for deliveries. It will also guarantee workers access to bathrooms. Yes, y'all, bathrooms. A problem that has long plagued people in the gig economy and has been exasperated by the COVID-19 restrictions. City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, speaking in a press conference following the vote on Thursday, said the package would give workers the, quote, right they deserve and inspire future legislation. New York will now be the first city in the country to make sure delivery workers are not exploited, to make sure people are treated with dignity and respect, and that they get their wages and that they are not exploited by these multi-billion dollar corporations, he said. 
So I think this is an awesome thing to uh, talk about. I'm happy that it happened. Um, it's really sad to realize for us to kind of really conceptualize how much we depend on delivery drivers and not just for food apps, but think, you know, mail carriers, FedEx, anybody that is out there uh, working with between business and residents, um, they need to have protections. They need to have stability in their life. And the fact that they can't even use the bathroom at their businesses, that's that's just out of control. So I'm happy to hear that this legislation has passed. And as I always say, if it can happen in New York, it can happen anywhere. Yeah, that's awesome news. Absolutely. Um, so we are at the end of our story, our, our show this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, shout out to all of the October birthdays, including myself, Libra Gang Gang. <laughs> yeah, and I'd like to say um, it's a happy belated birthday to my father. His birthday was a little while ago, but he's also a Libra. Happy birthday, so, Pops. Love you, Dad. I hope you have a good one. That's right. And I hope you all enjoy the rest of our month um, that we have here because October is awesome. You can catch all of our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn app on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Spotify. Please continue to listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. I'm going to go ahead and play you out with our final track of the day. So appropriate by the legendary Amy Winehouse. This is October song. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.